Hello, and welcome to the Inspired Educator Podcast, where educators share insights to improve the educational experience. I'm your host, Dr. Yuling Lee. On today's episode, I'm speaking to Allison Jewell. Allison is Dean and Professor of Education at Trinity Western University. She's also one of the founding directors of Trinity Western University's Gender Studies Institute. In 2016, she was awarded the National 3M Teaching Fellowship for Excellence in University Teaching. Allison has written many books and articles in the areas of gender and language, gender and education, as well as gender and religion. In our wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the complexities of gender and education. Allison offers a rich theoretical understanding paired with great teaching and learning suggestions. Her research is very helpful for everyone, not just educators, who want to be informed about this important topic. Without further ado, Allison Jewell. Hi, Allison, and welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So you were a teacher before becoming a professor. Yeah, I was. For how, how long? Uh, just a few years. I taught high school English, and that's kind of where I learned a lot. In fact, that was probably what sparked my interest. It was This was in the uh, mid-80s, and the big push at the time was to use more discussions, discussion groups, small group discussions, and somehow offer the grade based on their contributions to the discussions, which is really hard to do because mm-hmm. um, if someone's talkative, do that, does that just give them more a uh, higher grade because they're naturally more talkative and the person who's naturally more withdrawn gets marked down because they're not contributing in the same ways. But anyway, I was paying attention to it. And in the small group discussions, there was a lot of chat with the girls and boys and um, over the topics presented. But then when we came back for the full class discussions, yes, I noticed that it it was the boys who were offering those suggestions. And I was paying attention to it because I was trying to keep track of who was contributing to class discussions. And I just thought that was, for me, that was surprising. I somehow thought growing up that women were talkative and, you know, they're always chit-chatting away and men can be the strong silent types, maybe because those were the types of men and women um, who surrounded me. But it was interesting to look at it um, as a teacher and then as a researcher, when you're kind of focused in on this pattern and then you start to see it in, in so many, so many places. So was the, the classroom setting kind of um, propelled you to pursue this as a researcher into PhD studies? And Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, was, I was very interested in uh, the gendered pattern. I had read a book when I was an undergrad called Schools Are For Boys All right. by Pat Monty hmm. uh, in London, in the UK. <laughs> and eventually I was able to do my PhD with Pat Monty in the UK uh, because that book had really sparked my interest. Mm-hmm. I had never considered the concept that school was gendered or sexist. It had never dawned on me. Um, so when this sort of idea started to take root, then I got more and more and more interest, interested in it. And it seems like the more and more I consider it, the infinitely more there is to consider because since the 80s, gender relations have also changed dramatically. Yes. And we have, a, we have this um, worry about the underachievement of boys which I was also interested in in exploring, and found mm. that basically there's a fear every September, and has that there's been a there's been that fear for probably the last seventy years since records started being kept in Canada mm. uh, that the boys are underachieving, mm. and that the girls are just going to take over the world. <laughs> and now that there are higher numbers of women at universities across the country, uh, that's seen as evidence that that's exactly what happened. There was a feminization of the classroom mm. and all these new strategies, group discussions were uh, giving girls the upper hand and they were, um, you know, that feminism had done its task. But what's interesting to consider is that those numbers definitely represent the addition of education mm-hmm. as faculties of education and faculties of nursing mm-hmm. that have entered the university scene. Those Both those professions are predominantly uh, women. Yeah. So when you add that to the university roster, mm-hmm. that brings in huge 
huge numbers. So if you took out those faculties in an analysis of university populations, you would see more traditional um, privileging of male students, certainly in the STEM science, technology, engineering, and math yeah. uh, fields in the uni- in university when students are selecting their areas of expertise and planning their careers. Yeah. You just, it's, it's dominated by, by men. And those, those professions go on to be much higher paid professions for the most part, mm-hmm. as we're teaching and nursing are, you know, at a set point, mm-hmm. they, they're well unionized and they kind of are different types of, there's a different kind of career. Yeah trajectory with those careers so yeah so i come from a stem background too so my undergraduate was at the university of waterloo mm-hmm. um in computer science and math and most of my friends in the class or uh who went on to become programmers or, or engineers it was overwhelmingly male yeah um in fact there were a few engineering courses where you could in a class of 100 or 200 you can count um, the female students on one hand, mm-hmm. it, it was that lopsided <laughs> yeah. in terms of numbers. And that was just early 2000s. Yeah. And, and we still see those. In fact, there are stats that are showing that it's actually gone down mm. that with even massive effort to get girls involved in STEM, mm. um, that the amount of women graduates from those programs has, has gone down mm. like from what might've been Oh, this is a this is a guess here. Maybe it was hovering around seventeen percent, mm-hmm. and that might be generous in the in the mid nineteen eighties. Hmm. It's gone down to five percent in many cases. Okay, yeah. So it's it's. I think it's interesting um, what is sort of understood in pop culture about gender relations, and yeah. But when you look at the the evidence and consider things on a on a wider scale. Mm-hmm. You see that the patterns are are very sexist, and they remain so. They're mm-hmm. very well entrenched. Hmm. You said something along the lines of the there was like a feminization of teaching. Mm-hmm. I actually came across that term before through I don't know if you've read um, Bill Pinar's work yes. um, in curriculum or mm-hmm. or Madeline Grummet mm-hmm. uh, specifically. And Grummet in the seventies, she spoke about how, and I'll just. Kind of <laughs> quote, but the feminization of teaching functioned to ensure this pedagogy of patriarchy. Mm. And her her work is more theoretical, but it it sounds like it, it kind of really resonated with perhaps some of this research based thing that you're speaking of. Mm-hmm. I'm trying. To, I have a sense of that, but because I I don't clearly interact with many. Um, say administrators right. in the K to 12 level. Right. Like I'm wondering have you seen research into that whether that is still predominantly the case mm-hmm. um or how would you yeah. speak to that? Well, regarding the administrators of schools today. Sure. Um what is discussed in the theory is uh an academic harem. Okay. <laughs> okay. In that most let's say elementary schools yeah. have significantly more female teachers. Yeah. And they might they might be all female teachers mm. and the principal is a male. Yeah. Uh, so you get that with men who go into the profession, they gen- generally go very quickly mm. to positions of leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe because they pursue them yeah. um, more robustly, but even so, it does set up a kind of um, patriarchy yeah. that just feeds itself. Mm. But I guess the word feminization can be maybe understood in two different ways. Sure. Like I've heard, or I've heard it used two different ways. One is just that there are more women in it, so it must be more feminine. Okay. And that I think is a problematic concept if you look at the fact that most people are raised by mothers mm-hmm. and they're women, uh, and that's been the case for humanity itself. Mm-hmm. So to say that that's been a shift. I think is a bit odd mm. that there's more uh, feminine presence. Um, I'm not sure you could really make that case mm-hmm. in the sense that women teaching boys, I don't think that's anything new. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's because feminism of the 1970s created a world where women were now more powerful than men. Mm. But sometimes I've heard feminization of schooling used that way. Okay. That the women got in there and took over and now they have emasculated mm. the boys in the class because they're privileging it for women 
And I, I guess I'm not convinced by the, at least not yet, by the research mm-hmm. that, that that is anything new. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, so I would say that certainly the rise of feminism in Canadian society in general mm-hmm. uh, has certainly had an effect on um, the lives of both men and women, mm. undoubtedly. But I think that there are still, I think there is a strong root of sexism in most of our mm-hmm. experiences and definitely in the workplace, mm. whether it's as a teacher in a school system or what I've cared about the students themselves mm. and how the system responds to them based on their maleness or femaleness. And we certainly get an interesting set of discussions with the um, increased attention paid to LGBTQ students. Mm-hmm. Because then it is it maleness, is it femaleness, mm. uh, which are more physiological terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think of that as, you know, the sex of someone, male or female. Yeah. But that the gender is what is socially constructed. Okay. So that could be, yeah, feminine uh, or what is seen as feminine attached to those who are female in a culture, any culture. Yeah. Um, and what is understood as masculine is attributed to the males in the culture. But if you have uh, gender fluidity and, you know, different kinds of expressions, then you can't just make that link mm-hmm. either. And I think that's been a big shift in feminist linguistics, a field I've huh. spent quite a bit of time in. Uh, for the, through the 1990s, there was definitely a focus on women's language and women's ways of speaking and that mm. there were patterns of, that women used more tag questions at the end of sentences, you know? Yeah. Um, like that, or rising intonation, even if there's no question there. Uh, but it, I think within, um, I don't know, maybe f- uh, 10 years of some of that research coming out presented that way, mm-hmm. it's moved now to what's understood better as powerless language and more powerful language. Mm. So the, definitely language is key in how people are gendered, yeah. both in how they use their language and yeah. interact with various um groups of people um but also the way that they're interpreted by mm. others so it's both enacting them and perform uh, rehearsing them into these certain uh, approved of gender performances mm-hmm. um and certainly school is the gender stage where the rehearsals are very intense yeah. to what what is okay for a girl what's okay for a boy and they become a way of identifying for children to identify with their friends mm. And it's not incidental. So the conversations, I think, I think are, and and discourse analysis gives us Mm -hmm. a lot of insight into that, checking for discourse markers and how it is that language both reflects our attitudes, let's say about gender, but it also creates our attitudes towards gender. So the way we shift language reveals something about what we understood, what we understand as powerful versus powerless mm-hmm. and sometimes that's male and female and mm-hmm. i would say in many workplaces it is it remains a patriarchal mismatch mm-hmm. but it wouldn't have to be mm-hmm. men that are that are um patronizing <laughs> women can be patronizing yeah. too okay. so if it's a power relation yeah um i think that's that's now more interesting mm. who's who's the powerful one in in whether it's um in the classroom or the boardroom, mm-hmm. whose performance reveals um, power and mm-hmm. how is that understood by the community? Mm-hmm. Mm. No, that's great because um, I was reading my background in ed tech, um, and I mentioned this in the notes of uh, there was this writer, Donna Haraway, um, mm-hmm. and she's kind of dabbled in both technology as well as feminist writing. Um, but from what I understand, some have taken up her, uh, she famously wrote this thing called the a Cyborg Manifesto in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and some have attributed kind of a, a post-gendered world, mm-hmm. like we are all cyborgs. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has kind of, she she's never claimed that in a, the post-gender idea, mm-hmm. um, but she's okay if people attribute that to her or, or something to that effect. But I, I'm wondering this power relation and what that would mean in our complex world now that it's gender fluidity and mm-hmm. or potentially post-gendered now. Mm-hmm. So I guess, are, are you speaking to 
perhaps we should be more focused on this this issue of power mm-hmm. and and then gender just kind of makes the, the conversation more complex and and we should be kind of looking at at these networks of different gendered notions i i think that the um Linguist, linguists yeah. around the world are looking at the power in different contexts and okay. that the situations and events um, reveal what's who's who's got the power yeah. um, through certain language patterns that are understood with that community. So you get this notion of communities of practice mm. by Levin Wenger that came out in the 90s as well, that mm. there was this, um, we belong to each other because we speak in certain ways that are understood and accepted by each other. Yeah. So that the, that's an interesting addition. I think that's true. But post-gendered, um, I mean, that would be interesting. Cert- it, it sort of reminds me of the discussion around post-feminism okay. as well. So if you, if you think post as in after, yeah. um, that's one set of discussions. If you think of post as beyond or and then, yeah. uh, then both gender and feminism would continue mm-hmm. so that there would have been an active understood long-standing experience of mm-hmm. male and femaleness let's say in western culture mm-hmm. and so to say yeah well we're now um post-gendered would suggest that those more rigid traditional roles have been interrupted and of course they have mm-hmm. um and uh, you could you know did feminism cause those changes or were those changes in motion and therefore the rise of feminism was possible and mm. i think i tend to go in that direction myself mm. when you think of how world war one impacted uh the west and how it, it shook up what had otherwise been very um firm tightly held victorian attitudes towards proper behavior of a lady yeah. and a gentleman and that that got all messed up in the trenches yeah um and then when the war was over, how do you return to that? You can't, you can't, you know, the mm. horse is out of the barn, so to speak. So now we've got um, a whole societal shift. Mm. So to say there were, you know, there was a group of women who just wanted more power and they kind of emerged in the U.S. and started burning their bras and they ruined <laughs> yeah. Western society. I mean, there are, I think there are some people who continue to think that way, but I think that that's an error mm. because I think with that whole um, time in American society was the baby boomers generation. There was a lot of shift in power dynamics, including civil rights mm-hmm. and the anti-Vietnam War. So the whole bunch of social change was going on. I don't think feminism was the cause. I think feminism was in many ways the uh, result mm. of societal change. And feminism itself, I mean, we we seem to understand it as as somehow beginning then and there. Yeah. But I mean, you go back to even medieval mystics mm. um, into the Middle Ages, and there's this awareness of power differentials mm-hmm. and uh, what kind of voice women were allowed to have or express, mm. what that did for their own communities of faith in the church, mm-hmm. and then the rise of education for women in the 19th century. Mm. And writers like Mary Wollstonecraft was in the 18th century when she wrote Vindications of the Rights of Woman mm. and Education of Our Daughters where she, as part of the Enlightenment, is saying, if you want to better society, then you're going to have to better the women alongside. Mm. They're going to need the same kind of schooling. Mm -hmm. They're going to need to go to school. They're going to need to be intelligent uh, citizens to participate fully. Yeah. And this was long before the vote was being discussed. It was just, you know, you need an intelligent wife and mother to create kind of certain kind of enlightened homes. And that really changed... uh, education for for girls Mm. so to say that you know somehow feminism emerged just at this one place and one time um that isn't deep enough for what has been the movement and i have had conversations with feminists in other countries Mm. um most most recently huma hudfar she's um uh an academic here in canada but she was imprisoned in iran Mm. For being being a feminist, having a feminist scholarship when she was there visiting family. Wow. And um, when she came out, was released through diplomatic means. Uh, we had her come and speak at our conference on women and gender studies. Mm. And she had she said, if you think feminism, if we're post-feminism, mm. then you're not paying attention to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, how women are treated in many, many areas in the world is incredibly damaging, mm. diminishing, 
um, yeah, incredibly dehumanizing mm-hmm. of the female experience in certain mm-hmm. con- countries and cultures. So I think Western uh, feminists have to be careful that as they're as they're taking the theories into new terrain, mm-hmm. uh, they're not losing some of the main issues mm-hmm. which do center around power, but power that's particularly in embodied mm-hmm. in who is male and who is female. Yeah. That's just a and and certainly the more advanced societies have more equal um, responsibilities and duties. Male and female, there's more equality. Um, and so you see more developing nations that struggle with incredible suppression of women. And so that's an interesting connection of education with um, women's rights, women's voices, and contributions. But it, it doesn't mean that the West has, has, um, is ticking all the boxes on this. So, yeah, when we talk about STEM, or even when you now, um, the linguistic space theory that I was working with um, in the 90s, I, I, I see it being picked up everywhere. Uh, the Seed Jane organization out of Hollywood has recently re- uh, released a report looking at how many words are spoken by male characters in a movie or female characters yeah. in a movie. Even if the main character is a female, yeah. like in Pretty Woman, uh, most of the words spoken are by men, mm. not by the main character. The main character of <laughs> yeah. the film. Um, and you can check out their websites. I mean, they've had thousands of movies that they've done this to. And in children's movies in particular, you see significantly more voices um, who are male, mm. even in, you know, Cinderella, for example. Mm. And so I guess why do we care? Well, when you see that kind of pattern that's repeated, and then you see the way teachers even interact with students and what's expected of young girls as they you know, become uh, women. And are they going to have careers? Are they going to, you know, what kind of careers are they going to have? Mm. What do they, will their careers cost them? How will their trajectory look? The, the, the um, opt-out study that came out of Harvard, it, had, it was a 25-year longitudinal study on women who had graduated from Harvard Law in the 1980s and they followed them for 25 years and revisited their successes because these were women from incredibly privileged backgrounds Mm -hmm. with clear ability and had you know one of the best educations in the world Mm. but when they followed up 25 years later just a handful had gone on to be full partners in law firms um others were involved in different kinds of, of work um less demanding and um, or yeah, part-time work in, in a law firm. But mm. when asked why, what had happened, or, you know, did they want more and they couldn't get more? Um, I mean, there was some talk about the um, masculinization of certain professions that, yeah. you know, the guys go out for beers and golf. And then that, that just that itself um, creates a camaraderie that can exclude women. But the women themselves said, we don't, we didn't want to work 80 hours a week. Mm. And some said, we didn't want to work our 80 hours a week and not be rewarded for it. Mm. And uh, they wanted other things. Yeah. They wanted to spend time with their families. They wanted to do things that I guess were related to their um, background, but not in this, in the same kind of success indicator way. Mm. I find that kind of stuff really interesting, particularly yeah. as an educator. Mm-hmm. Because you think, well, what are the hidden messages that are being heard loud and clear mm. about who counts here, mm-hmm. who we're going to listen to, um, yeah, who matters to us, mm. and and how is that communicated or how is that revealed? Mm. Uh, and for those of us who have daughters, I know you have a little daughter <laughs> in your life, and um, I think that some some people, particularly. Yeah, well, maybe is this a fair comment? I don't know, but I've I've definitely known men who get much more interested in the treatment of girls and women mm. when they have daughters of their own mm. and see that um, the potential in their daughters and yeah. why would why would they want anything to stand in the way of their daughter becoming fully themselves? Mm. Which I think is the point. Mm. And gender is a huge part in how how we are embodied and how we how we play out those roles mm-hmm. and how our society affirms them or. Or rejects them. Yeah. Oh, that was great. So in, in light of this uh, complex conversation about especially gender and education, um, can you tell me how you 
got to a place in, I guess, bringing about, uh, is it just a program or mm-hmm. a course or how did it happen yeah. at Trinity Western in which this yeah. space emerged? Uh, yeah. for a discussion like that well it's such a it's such a good question because it has such a rich answer <laughs> um so you'll know trinity western university is an evangelical mm-hmm. faith-based totally private university in canada it's very rare it's certainly the um largest of its type and i did my, yeah my own phd work was in gender and education so when there was an opening here um i had applied and was connected with some others, other scholars at, at Trinity, other women in particular, who had been gathering um, with other female faculty for, you know, I don't know, chat sessions or something because mm. of what they saw as a very sexist campus. Mm. So uh, when I joined, we established, the three of us established the Gender Studies Institute, mm-hmm. which is a, a research institute. We have Oh, 30 to 40 faculty that are actually part of the institute that do research in gender somehow and support the work of that interrogation and interruption. And then we have gender cafes that are each month and we bring speakers sometimes from within the campus community, but oftentimes from outside of Trinity to come in and talk about aspects of gender. Mm -hmm. And there are many possible (laughs) conversations for sure. Uh, One of the ones I, I remember that was quite recent that I thought was particularly powerful was one on campus rape. Okay. Uh, there was a big story coming out of UBC mm. and it was inter- an interesting one to consider at Trinity and what the rates were, um, how it, the process plays out here mm. because, um, you know, people are people and that process was sort of an interesting one to think at Trinity. So we have these gender cafes that is just really to increase awareness mm-hmm. of how these um, social issues impact our private lives. And about five years ago, um, we decided here in the School of Education that it would be a benefit to our students to have a full three-credit course uh, on gender and education, just mm. because of the discussions here on campus and uh, around Trinity, about Trinity, coming from Trinity, being leveled at Trinity, <laughs> and our our teacher our our education students preparing to be teachers in both independent and public schools. Mm -hmm. We wanted them prepared for the terrain Mm -hmm. and to understand um, what the consequences are and what they could expect as classroom teachers, what they should be aware of, Mm -hmm. what they, they want to be conscious of in their own practice. And then with the, the, with it just in the last couple of years, the SOGI one, two, three resource curriculum emerged. And we talk about that quite a bit too in the gender and education class. So it's been, it's been a, a, you know, I love teaching the class (laughs) and uh, the the discussions are really, really interesting, but the, the, there's a lot, there's a lot of theory that help, Hmm. that can help teachers understand what is going on Mm -hmm. uh, in the classroom and the consequences of what's going on, hmm. what the consequences are in in real life. Bullying is incredibly mm-hmm. gendered, uh, both online and elsewhere. Violence at school, much of it is um, is gender based. Hmm. So it's it's a sociological variable, hmm. and there are other sociological variables, of course. But it is an interesting one to really focus on hmm. because no matter how it's enacted in different schools and different cultures there is a gender performance going on and there are um, rewards for behaving in certain gendered ways and punishments. We're veering from that. Can you give an example of um, a discussion that happened during that class that, Mm. that, yeah, was especially interesting? I I think that the students have really appreciated some of the foundational discussions on feminism itself and its interruption into power. I think that's they I can see students getting engaged because they have their own lives where they can see how sexism has affected their choices, uh, their opportunities, and that uh, having a kind of way to understand it, I think can be can be really helpful. Um, certainly, the discussions on uh, bullying definitely engage students. Um, the sexualization of childhood is an interesting conversation as well. Yeah. And 
I mean, achievement levels are always of interest, but I do think that the stats can be helpful to a point, mm. uh, maybe very helpful, but there is the qualitative nature to mm. this topic. And by bringing in studies that are more qualitative, yeah. um, LGBTQ issues in schools, what happens when a student comes out in school or transitions, mm -hmm. those sorts of things are impacting today's teacher and mm -hmm. those topics come, mm. come up. I'm trying to think of <laughs> being a, a professor here as well. Uh, I, I do find some of the more nuts and bolts type of questions where say students want to know how should I dress so-and-so mm -hmm. or um, how do I, I manage this classroom mm -hmm. issue when say whether a student comes out or um, if they're trans, how should I address them that those type of issues. Mm -hmm. And um I wonder how does this discussion of gendered, it seems like it would enrich in that. Yeah. Um, but I also wonder because being in this private evangelical space, mm -hmm. a lot of them perhaps have never even encountered that in their lives. Mm -hmm. So I do wonder what is that type of discussion like in class? Yeah. Um, I think for the most part, they know that it's going to be very relevant to their yeah. lives as teachers. And so they, they want, we bring in speakers. Um, from out in schools comes mm -hmm. uh, to Trinity to give the workshop uh, on those sorts of issues. We had um, a lesbian married couple who were both pastors mm -hmm. come and talk about the experience for them in the church in particular too. So, um, and I'm always surprised how much more experience Trinity students have with this issue than might be assumed. Okay. So some of them come from very um, closed Christian communities, mm. but even within those closed Christian communities, there are real people with real issues. So it, um, in that way, I think it engages everyone pretty quickly. I think that there, there would be a danger in teaching the course if it was based on what we would say an essentialist view okay. of, of gender or sex. Yeah. So, um, like boys are like that, or that's how ladies do it, yeah. which gets, a lot of kind of uh, wink, wink, you know, nod, nod kind of stuff in a lot of Christian communities. Mm. And to bring up some of those patterns of being mm. in the class and discussing the effect that those kinds of innocuous com comments, what some of the consequences of them are. Mm -hmm. um, for example, if you say boys are like that, boys will be boys, then, you know, you're then we as a society we're giving permission for a certain kind of behavior mm -hmm. to go unchecked because well boys are like that mm. and uh, it diminishes the boys mm. you know to you know they can't be reasoned with mm -hmm. <laughs> they can't be reflective they can't um control their impulses i mean th those sorts of assumptions set up boys for very lonely difficult lives too mm -hmm. so and this is same with with um the nice quiet girls mm. i mean it 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 forms them then um, I was at a conference recently where there was a talk about um, a stress and learning and that um, the cortisol levels and things can actually influence what is able to be taken in by the mm. brain. And now that we have that kind of science available and we didn't have it available before, mm -hmm. now we can, we can see and understand a bit more. You can't see if you look at a brain, mm -hmm. if it's a male or female brain. Mm -hmm. A brain is a brain. You mm -hmm. can tell the size and um, maybe the age of the brain, but there's nothing in the brain that makes it a female or male brain. Mm -hmm. And the talk about uh, the different ways, you know, girls and boys relate, I find this a very interesting and important point. So on the one hand, science can tell us that, um, let's say emotional maturity for a, a young woman is around the age of 20. Mm -hmm. And then we see those similar results for young men when they're around 25. Mm -hmm. So you could say, well, there you go. You know, <laughs> girls are like that and boys are like this. Yeah. But what is important is how the brain is still being formed uh, after birth. Mm -hmm. And so even the, the interaction with babies mm. is forming their gender uh, behaviors. Mm. So, Little, little baby girls, they get more eye contact, they're spoken to more. Um, so in that sense, they have more relational time mm. allotted to them than the boys. So then the, the actual synapse patterns are being developed. Mm. Um, so then you can say, well, it's there, we see it in the brain, 
but the brain is also in some ways it's been mm. socially constructed. constructed. Yeah. So I, I think the the whole nature nurture thing is totally unhelpful. Okay. I think that it's just a you know complex, mysterious combination of a whole host of a whole host of factors. Mm-hmm. You know, personality um, can predict you know a whole bunch too. So I it's I think gender is helpful and important. Um and also important to see it alongside other variables. Uh, we, we we call that intersectionality. So mm-hmm. there's there's gender and sex. They may or may not be related. There's socioeconomic status. There's religion. There's you know ethnicity, race. All of those socially constructed realities. They're they all weave together. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't really. It gets sticky if you kind of try to pull, a, you know, the thread out of a tapestry. Yeah. It's already interconnected and it's creating other patterns elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So you to just pop it out and say, okay, we're going to look at gender and this is going to answer all our questions about our students. You know, that's that's just naive. But to not consider gender, I think, is also mm-hmm. very naive. I think it plays as big a role as anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hence the the issue of power, especially in why I, I think I gravitated towards that. In your personal experience as a teacher, as an academic, then, mm-hmm. uh, how has that manifested in both positive and negative ways? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's start with the positive. Okay. Then. Sure. <laughs> um, I I think that uh, the sisterhood that I've experienced yeah. has been incredible, mm. both at Trinity and in other uh, academic communities in Canada. Mm. Uh, the Women and Gender Studies Erlerschelsch Feminist Organization uh, has been a big part of of my life uh, lately, for sure. And those kind of communities have been helpful. Uh, why are they so helpful? Because the leadership at um, in academia is predominantly male. Does that matter if we're talking about you know gender can go any which way? You can be any which way. Um, I think that it. It matters because the patterns have been so established. So uh, I was in one conversation recently where um, it was a working group, academic group, and we were asked to go around the circle and just, you know, briefly um, say the strengths and weaknesses of each person around the table. There were about 10 of us, not even, I don't think, but um, which is a painful, like vulnerable, risky activity. Uh, for sure, at the best of times. And so sure enough, we went around and we were all, you know, gracious as can be about everyone's strengths and weaknesses. And it was only when I was reflecting on it that it occurred to me, and then it was obvious that both the strengths and weaknesses offered to me mm-hmm. were were um, sexist assumptions. Mm-hmm. So the way the strengths were uh, more about how various ways I'm nice um okay. you know, you're warm and friendly uh, that kind of that kind of messaging was the set of strengths mm-hmm. and then the weaknesses were you can sometimes you know be too opinionated or you speak <laughs> your mind too often or something and i thought oh there it is that yeah. kind of assumption that the ways i'm a nice girl is what is being um affirmed mm. and then uh ways that i'm not a nice girl is seen as the weakness mm-hmm. instead of those same traits being 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 understood in in a different kind of mm-hmm. frame. Um, the male, there, there were only two women around the table. The the other strengths seemed to be more on, you know, you really um, really intelligent guy, and I, I really mm-hmm. appreciate your insights. And yeah, you just you really thoughtful in your decision making. And it was they were more um, character strengths, mm-hmm. and definitely more on their intellectual mm. contributions mm-hmm. and the weaknesses seemed a bit, a bit more uh, flippant, mm. you know, late sometimes, mm. you know, don't keep to deadlines, which, you know, seems much more incidental. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was just, that's one example and it's recent um, or how, what we've, I, what I like doing if I can around, uh, you know, the board of government, um, like other committees, mm-hmm is what's called amplifying. So if a woman has said a comment and I see it because I'm, you know, so tuned in. Yeah. Often a woman will give a comment, no one really comments on the comment until basically the comment is repeated later in the conversation often by a man and mm-hmm. then it's actually picked up on. 
So um, amplification would be when another woman in the group hears that a woman has spoken that way and then offers a contribution to the conversation that amplifies the comment. Mm. So an amplification could be, I thought Ruth's contribution there was really Mm. interesting. I think we should really take that one seriously because the impacts could be enormous. In fact, maybe Ruth, could you Mm -hmm. um, just say a bit more about it? I'd like to hear more about it so that there's this, you know, you're not uh, just to put more attention to amplify the contributions. Yeah. Um, And that is a really interesting concept. I know it was used in uh, Obama's White House Mm. by the women who also saw this is you know what you might think of as a more enlightened kind of hmm. guy but the patterns are so deep and so um invisible until you really mm-hmm. become more conscious of them and then you see them hmm. and then they get <laughs> then they get frustrating yeah. and then you're hooked on how you could possibly interrupt this <laughs> but i thought that was an interesting an interesting idea hmm. and I, I like using it when i can so are there any specific kind of pedagogical <laughs> tools or things that you would suggest for well for myself definitely but also for for teachers especially yeah. to, to get this conversation happening and there are some things i've done just some of them more subtle sometimes i'm explicit okay um so when i put them into discussion groups mm-hmm. depending on who's all there um i will kind of play with it and I, if if the class has 25 students let's say for example and yeah. five of the students are male students okay. i might put them in one group mm. um but then i tend to do that with the talkative ones if i can mm-hmm. I, uh, sometimes it's just totally random but um if i if i'm putting them in set groups and i try to do that mm. i try to make sure that they're kind of with similar temperament types mm-hmm. if possible so that in some group the talkative one isn't just talking the whole time mm-hmm. and the quiet one isn't required to speak but if you put the quieter ones together someone has to mm-hmm has to speak so the, there's that uh sometimes i'll i'll tell the class i'm just going to do an experiment or i'm just testing my own teaching today so i'm just going to take note of how many um people different people are are speaking into it or um when the students give presentations i've started to ask the 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 audience <laughs> to the presentation mm. the other students um to prepare questions and then i'll just call on them to ask their question mm. So then I just go down the roster and say, you know, Sarah, um, yeah, we'd like to know your question. Mm. And the idea is that she's been preparing, that it's, but that she would prepare for any of them because mm-hmm. she could be called at any point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I've, I've, I've set that up. Um, and then sometimes I'll say, and now actually not just sometimes, I think I usually now do this, that if we're having conversations, I'll just quickly say, I'll take, um, I'll come back for second rounds after we hear from a few more people. Mm. So, okay. Yeah. Hold, hold your thought yep. and uh, we're coming back, but I want to hear a couple more comments before we take it further or something like that. Yeah. But that came with some practice maybe yep. and um, more and more confidence that it mattered to me. Mm-hmm. So it was going to have to matter <laughs> to my students <laughs> that I wanted to hear them. and. Particularly because I think if they're education students, they're going to be teachers. Yeah, we need we need a well developed sense of your ideas and voice, and mm-hmm. you know it's it's important that you are comfortable uh, mm-hmm. discussing <laughs> your ideas with people. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's something that can be deliberately um, brought into classroom mm-hmm. practice, even at the university level. Mm-hmm. If you were to kind of. Uh, dream or idealize what would uh, i guess a, a nice a safe space but also a, a way in which equally all students can can mm-hmm. participate well and and all of that um and especially mm-hmm. taking into account these issues of gender that we've been discussing mm-hmm. like what would that look like i i don't think it'll ever happen sure <laughs> <laughs> and in that way what you know maybe maybe a realistic hope Mm -hmm. is that the teachers that come through our program at least Mm -hmm. um, have um, a particular posture of compassion for their students Mm. and what some of the burdens of their students are. And again, that lots of sociological variables can fit right in there 
uh, too. But the simplification of gender roles that many teachers perpetuate, mm. I think in my ideal universe, they would stop that. Okay. That they, of all people, in the formation of the next generation like that, the socialization that schools do, mm. if teachers could stop saying <laughs> boys are like that mm -hmm. or you're being nice, quiet girls and doing your work, if mm -hmm. they could stop the generalizations, the sexist generalizations, that that would go a long way. Mm -hmm. mm. And, you know, because, yeah, people are infinitely complex, of course. But I do think that teachers have a very important role mm. to play in reinforcing uh, certain attitudes. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's big. Mm. Okay. Um, resources, anything specific that you can recommend? Mm -hmm. Well, theoretically, the Gender and Education Journal is, is a good one. Okay. Um, some very good research is published in that publication. Um, and then there is actually a whole literature on gender in the schools, um, gender and education. You could, you can find the Josie Bass, um, sorry, the Josie Bass handbook on gender and education. It gives again, this kind of like first, I think first you have to understand the, the issue yeah. <laughs> and the issues involved. And, um, and then it'll just, it'll, in some ways it's just, tweaks to a teacher's practice and attitudes. Mm. Sometimes it's more significant than that. But sometimes just the awareness can can go a long way. And I think that the relationality between teachers and students and what we get more and more in BC education for sure is the sense that the relationship is where the magic can happen. Mm -hmm. So if the teacher's prepared for a deep relationship with students and understands the complexity of sociological variables like gender, mm -hmm. um, like socioeconomic status, then they can be incredibly more um, engaged in that student's life and that student's development. Mm. If there's an understanding of the student mm -hmm. and all that goes into uh, their strengths and their challenges. Mm. Do you have a particular... TV show or movie, or I know you have a DVD collection. <laughs> yes, I do. Well, um, if you haven't seen the prize winner of Defiance, Ohio, okay. you'll have to go and get that one. It stars Julianne Moore and mm. it and uh, Woody Carlson. Carlson. Um, yeah, the prize winner of Defiance, Ohio. It's a 19, set in the 1950s, and it's a fantastic um, look at a family that wrestles with the gendered expectations of the mom and dad and how it how those how those expectations damage them both i th i think it's a it's a really interesting film in that way um if you haven't seen the prime of miss jean brody which won the oscar in 1969 and stars a very young maggie smith as miss brody in a private girls school in scotland uh set in the 1930s uh, that's also one you don't want to miss because it it looks at uh, a particular stage in teachers teachers history when a teacher a woman could teach until she was married or had children, um, but she couldn't teach after that because it, her focus would be her own family. Mm -hmm. So Miss Brody is um, wrestling with her own sense of who who can she be mm. and how she pours herself into her students. Is, is an interesting um, and disturbing psychological uh, experience. I mean, this, she definitely, in many ways, we know this from teacher theory too, that there's the theory of impersonation. Mm. And so there are teachers just in their deep psychological places. They like students who are like themselves mm -hmm. and they like students who want to be like them. Mm. Uh, and, you know, girls of a certain age are, prime for that and that's what's explored in that film it's mm. really an interesting kind of dismantling of self uh disturbing doesn't end happily mm. um sometimes i've shown the opening scene of the prime of miss jean brody alongside the opening scene in 
the Dead Poet Society mm-hmm. with Robin Williams in the front of the class, mm-hmm. taking them out to the hallway and say, Carpe diem. Yep. Um, that scene with the first scene in Miss Brody's classroom and then have them see the gendered expectations that are being reinforced and mm-hmm. required and how it is that the teachers, the teacher in each case, they are being the, like the gender coach. So if you remember the film, um, the Dead Poet Society, the messages are carpe diem, like mm-hmm. live your life, contribute to the world. You mm-hmm. have much to give it and think for yourself and think creatively and, you know, be a man. Mm-hmm. And then the messages that the girls are getting in Miss Brody's class are how to be proper uh, lady. Mm-hmm. And uh, they can't roll their sleeves up. It's, she won't have that in her, among her girls. She says that her girls are the creme de la creme and they walk certain ways. Yeah. And, uh, and so they're, they are positioned as in the gaze of others, and therefore they should be powerful mm-hmm. as the object, mm-hmm. um, which is a really interesting thing to think about. Mm. It was in the 19, it takes place in the 1930s. It was written by Muriel Spark in the 1960s, though, I believe. And it's an interesting place just because Europe's on the verge of World War II. So mm. it kind of contributes a little bit to, um, how the genders are even going to be used and exploited in war. Hmm. I think that when you look at, at teacher movies, I, I mean, I love them. I do have a collection and I, I just, <laughs> I'm always looking for, you know, the secret. And um, I think that that's not always explicit, but the, the women as the teachers seem to have roles of going against the you know, the hierarchy and finding um, a way to really, really care and love their, their students. And the men have the same sort of thing, but it's more um, of an external. So mis- maybe, maybe I'm pushing the point, but Mr. Holland's opus mm-hmm. works in obscurity as a music teacher, but um, you know, he's, there, there's something um, heroic about him. As where it seems like, let's say, contrast uh, the Freedom Writers, where the main character is a female teacher. It's more about like what she was able to do for um, the students, more so than it was really about her. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah, they're, maybe they're both heroic characters, and they both are teachers who care and love their students. So they're both very powerful teacher mm. films. But there can be just that slight, what you can accept in a, a female character it might not be the same way you'd accept it if it was in a male character. Yeah. Because we, are, we come to expect certain, certain traits as yeah. desirable. Hmm. Hmm. I definitely haven't seen two of those movies, so I should <laughs> get that on my mm. list uh, yeah, shortly. Well, yeah, you can borrow my DVD. What's a DVD player? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Can't, I, I can't help you there. I think those are all the questions and time that we have for now. I've enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Thanks for your excellent questions. No, thank you for, for being on the podcast. A special thank you to Allison Jewell for a wonderful conversation. This episode is brought to you by SOED, the School of Education at Trinity Western University. Until next time, may you be inspired in your educational journey.